Hello and welcome to My Chaotic Mind, the podcast dealing with the everyday difficulties of balancing adult life and eating disorder recovery. My name is Kaz and I shall be your host in this little corner of the podcasting world. It's important to mention I have no background or training in medicine, nutrition or psychology. I simply have my own very many years of lived experience. That said, if you're sitting comfortably, it's time to come with me through the looking glass. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of series three of my podcast. Last week was Eating Disorders Awareness Week here in the UK and the focus for it this year was eating disorders in men. This is a topic which I would very much have loved to have covered. However, despite reaching out to several men, I was unable to find anyone willing to participate in my podcast, either by a written submission or in an interview style chat. So for that reason, I won't be discussing that particular topic with you. I don't feel that I, as a 42-year-old woman, am really equipped to speak on that subject in the manner in which it deserves. So today, instead, I'm going to talk about hospitalisation when you are an older adult. I've seen and heard many stories by younger women in their teens and early 20s around this subject, but I think the experience is very different once you're over 30. Although I've had an eating disorder for most of my life, I was never really unwell enough with it to require hospitalisation until 2018 when I was 37. Despite this, I managed to delay my admission until 2020, by which time I was 39. I want to state at the outset of this episode that I'm not trying to present an inpatient stay in any particular light, positive or negative. I'm going to detail my experience, which will not be the same as anybody else's and how it made me feel. I'll be presenting the facts as I saw them and I'll be using my daily journal from that time in order to help me be as accurate as possible. It saddens me when I see people posting on social media with pride how many hospital admissions they've had or photos where their NG feeding tube is prominently on display. I've never had a feeding tube, something which I'm extremely glad about. It's not an indication of how unwell someone is, and neither are multiple hospital admissions. Depending on the state of services in your area, you may only be able to access a hospital bed if you are literally on death's door. If you've never been on an EDU and find yourself facing this prospect in your 30s or later, It can be quite terrifying if you really have no idea what to expect. I thought I would be on a ward full of young women, all vying to be the thinnest and trying to avoid eating at all costs. 
Whilst there were perhaps some people who fell under this descriptive umbrella, there were also many who did not. I also did not go in expecting or intending to make friends. I actually did become quite close to some of the other ladies there during my stay, and whilst we may not be as close now, I think we did help each other through. There were actually a number of women around my age who really did want to get better and weren't trying to fight against it. I can't speak for them, but it certainly helped me to cope when surrounded by those who were fighting tooth and nail against the recovery process. I went into hospital voluntarily. By that, I mean I was not under section. It was extremely important to me that I retain control over my faculties. I was also facing the prospect of going into hospital, which was terrifying, or that option was going to be taken off the table. And that, in a way, was even more terrifying. I had tried and tried to get better without an admission, but deep down, I knew this was what I really needed. Please don't misunderstand me. I definitely did not want to go into hospital. But I knew it's what I needed to do. And I knew if I didn't go in now, willingly, then I risked being forced in under a section if I deteriorated. I was also full of hope. This was a chance, I thought, to really get the better of the illness once and for all. I was determined that if I was going into hospital, I was only going to go in once. I'm not going to name the hospital that I went into, but given that I've stated in previous episodes where I live, it isn't difficult to work out where the only specialist EDU near to me is. It's important to remember that this is only my experience. Others will have different perspectives. One of my biggest fears was that I would be the only person over the age of 25. I did not want to be incarcerated, as I saw it, amongst a ward of much younger women. I also did not want to mix with others who had eating disorders. There can be a very competitive element to this illness, and that's not something that I wanted to be around. Indeed, all meals at first are supervised, You eat at tables with members of staff and other patients. Everyone is at different stages in their recovery. There are those refusing to eat or visibly struggling to consume their meals. There are those attempting to trick staff, hiding food and employing other methods to try to avoid eating. There are those who have certain habits or behaviours when they eat. All this can be extremely tough to cope with as someone going in determined to eat what they are supposed to. I often found myself sitting with a cleared place setting having finished my food, but having to wait until the rest of the table finished or the time limit imposed on the meal expired. Again, this was very hard. Simply because I ate my food fairly quickly and without obvious issue did not mean it wasn't a huge battle. My anorexia would beat me up for finishing my food when others weren't, for eating too fast, for not really being unwell, etc, etc. This isn't something that can be avoided, 
but it's an aspect I hadn't considered before going in. I was able to arrange to go and look round the hospital before my admission. This is something which I would strongly recommend you do if you have the opportunity. It at least gives you a reference point around which to set your expectations. I was able to see the bedrooms, communal areas, treatment rooms and dining room, as well as being able to ask questions about the programme. One downside was that, although I did not meet any patients, nor was I wanting to, I did glimpse a couple of very emaciated women. This immediately set off the anorexic voice in my head, telling me that I did not belong here. This was certainly not helped by the website for the hospital. Whilst it gave an overview of the building and the various treatment plans on offer, it also at the time featured a video from a former client filmed in 2010. This video opened with her stating what her BMI had been on her admission. As far as I can tell, this very triggering video has now been removed, but my BMI wasn't and never has been as low as hers. This made it very difficult to accept that I deserved or needed treatment. I was admitted in March 2020. It was a Monday. The Wednesday of that week is when it was announced that Britain was going into a lockdown due to the COVID pandemic. This undoubtedly impacted on my experience in hospital. I remember going in that Monday with my parents, and whilst we waited for someone from the ward to come and meet us at reception, I panicked and tried to leave. The staff member arrived to be confronted by one of my parents blocking the main door, the other holding me and begging me to stay while I cried and howled that I didn't want to do this after all. I calmed down and agreed to go up to the ward and at least visit the room that was assigned to me. Once there, I was still adamant that I wanted to leave. I was terrified. Various people had to consult other various people before it was determined that I could not be held under section and could therefore leave if I wanted to. So why didn't I? My parents and the doctors there told me that if I caught COVID, there was a real chance I would die. This was before we had any vaccinations. As I've spoken about in previous episodes, my immune system was like that of someone undergoing chemotherapy, so this was no idle threat. I agreed to stay, my parents promising to come and visit me soon. I didn't see them again until seven weeks later, when I discharged myself. As I said earlier, I had anticipated being the oldest person on the ward, being 39. I was not. In fact, there were several women older than me and many around my age. I would say that the split between over 25s and under 25s was about even. This was hugely comforting to me. Nice as the younger women were, for the most part, the experience of an eating disorder in your 20s is very different to the experience in your 30s, 40s and older. Several of the women were mothers and however hard it was for me, I can't even imagine how much harder it must have been to be separated from your child. 
One of the other things which really took me aback was how many of the other clients were from England. There were also a few from Ireland and from other islands. The number of Scottish patients were far outnumbered, at least on the EDU. This made me incredibly sad. So many women sent hundreds of miles from their families because there were no specialist beds in their area. Recovery from an eating disorder is tough and it really does involve friends and family. I believe that having their support can be crucial in maintaining progress which may have been made whilst in hospital. The financial and emotional strain this can put on both sufferers and their families is enormous. Many of these women were under section, meaning that they had absolutely no choice in the matter. Something which hadn't occurred to me before my admission were the ages of the staff who would be looking after me. There was a wide span of ages. Every client is assigned a key nurse and a secondary person to help them individually out with therapy. I was lucky in that both the people assigned to me were older and therefore more relatable for me. Other clients had staff who were much younger and in some cases less experienced and this made it harder for them to open up and discuss things. Age and experience are not always connected but in terms of life experience it can be hard for somebody who has just graduated in their early 20s to fully empathise with someone who is old enough to be their parent. I mentioned that I was admitted just before the first national lockdown. This means that my experience was far from typical. Staff were putting themselves and their families at risk by coming to work every day. Understandably, they had their own worries There were a great deal of unknowns and regulations were changing, sometimes on a daily basis. This meant that providing consistent care was pretty much impossible, though they did try. Visits and day trips were banned. Even the amount of posts we could receive was limited. Therapy groups were, at first, cancelled, then opened up to limited numbers – This was meant to ensure that there were never more than a certain number of people in an enclosed room at one time. Common sense could have gone a long way here. As patients on a ward, we were effectively living as a household. Socially distanced therapy groups were undermined by the post-meal supervision sessions when most of the ward would be crammed into one single room, often with extra chairs needing to be brought in. Whilst the pandemic undoubtedly impacted on the situation, there were several aspects which were not affected by this. I used the word incarcerated close to the beginning of this episode, and if you've never been a patient on an EDU, you may feel that this is a bit of an exaggeration. Let me assure you, it is not. Whilst you're not locked in your bedroom, you have to ask permission to go to the toilet or to shower, Everything you eat is monitored and you're told when and where you will eat, when and where you will go out, if indeed you are allowed to go out, and for access to even basic items which may be sharp or contain alcohol will be something someone could potentially use to harm themselves. This last thing applies regardless of whether or not you've ever harmed yourself 
And I do understand the reasoning behind this. Somebody could walk into your room and take something which they then used to hurt themselves with, but it doesn't make it any less humiliating. Imagine a grown woman having to ask permission for mouthwash or perfume or even the cable to charge a mobile phone. It's almost like being in primary school again. You even have to ask permission to go to the toilet. And, in the beginning, a member of staff will accompany you. Most will stand by the door, their backs turned. But sometimes you get agency staff who openly stare at you. I cannot describe how demeaning this is. There were also a series of medical ops that were meant to be done. The frequency of this dependent on physical health. There were many occasions when these were not done on me at all, even within the first week of admission. Again, not a huge deal by itself, but when added to everything else, it all mounts up. There is also a huge inconsistency within the way staff behave and apply the rules. Most of the staff are lovely, but firm when they have to be. However, some of them seem to be on a bit of a power trip. I encountered several people during my stay who seemed to almost derive pleasure from the control they had over us, particularly those of us who were a decade or more older than they were. They spoke to us very much as if we were naughty children, demanding a respect which they did not do us the courtesy of returning. They would shout across the dining room while sitting at separate tables, surrounded by women at various stages of recovery. Part of the job, I would have thought, would be not only to make sure that patients eat what they are supposed to, but to support them if they're struggling. Not really something that can be done when you're yelling to a staff member at the table across the room about what you're going to do with your weekend. I certainly experienced instances of being shouted at and talked down to, even when I was trying to apologise. Almost every time a new client was admitted, they'd be sitting in the lounge with the rest of us after meals, often crying as their eating disorder tortured them for whatever they had just eaten. Some staff would tell them to stop crying because it was upsetting for the rest of us. Now, I can only speak for myself here, but it was not upsetting for me. What was upsetting was seeing someone sobbing their heart out, knowing exactly how they felt, but not even being able to offer words of comfort to them. We had to sit for an hour in a very specific position. This was hugely uncomfortable. One rule was that we could not cross our legs, a very natural thing that many of us, including myself, do without thinking. I was told off so many times for this. Blankets, pillows and things to make the experience of sitting on a hard chair in a cool room without moving were banned. Even when it came to one of the most fundamental parts of an EDU, food, there were huge inconsistencies. Different people had different ideas of what was and wasn't allowed. This made an already highly emotionally charged and volatile environment even worse. There were times I had to go and actively ask for the food which staff had forgotten I was supposed to be having. There was another time I was effectively sent to my room without any lunch because of a mix-up with food preparation. I was accidentally kept on stage three of a five-stage meal plan for far longer than I should have been as the dietitian had only given out the first sheet. 
I was the one who had to point out this error. The first screw-up was on my first full day as a patient. Having initially been told that I would eat all my meals in my room whilst I was on a refeeding plan, I was then told to go to the dining room for lunch. When I arrived, nobody was expecting me to be there. Being admitted to a hospital is overwhelming enough, and to already have even minor things like this happening was a huge spanner in the works. Just two days after that, I had to go and ask for my evening meal as they had completely forgotten about it. It would have been so easy to say nothing and skip it. If these had been infrequent occurrences, I think my outlook would have been much more positive. But sadly, these errors happened often, and this served only to diminish any hope I had, and each one only compounded my feelings of worthlessness. I'm someone who has always been very proactive when it comes to my treatment, but if you aren't someone who feels able to speak out, or if you're someone whose eating disorder will take every opportunity to avoid food or bend the rules, this could be hugely detrimental. I actually became fed up with the number of times I had to chase and correct things. It was exhausting. I understand that staff are busy and the effects of the pandemic will have increased stress levels, but this is one aspect of my experience which made me feel really upset. Another thing I quickly discovered was that, as an older person, I was often overlooked. I lost count of the number of times I was crying in my room and nobody either noticed or cared. There were several times we were collectively summoned to a ward meeting where we were told that the way we were addressing staff was unacceptable and that we had to allow for the environment COVID had created and the pressures of having to adapt to this. This had the effect of making me scared to speak to staff or to ask for anything. I did my best to be polite and respectful, and whilst I can look back now and see that this was a case of telling everybody, but only directly speaking to the minority, at the time I was struggling so much that it only made my mood drop and things feel worse. I learned very quickly that if you wanted any kind of attention, you had to be vocal and disruptive. I did not kick off, in inverted commas, and this meant I was often ignored. I witnessed this with many of my fellow clients on the ward too. Staff would be kept busy trying to calm down or diffuse situations with other clients, and those of us who were less difficult had to more or less fend for ourselves. The disconnect in therapy was, I believe, very much a result of the COVID pandemic and not something which the hospital could really control. They were doing their best under guidance, which was changing daily. This did impact on those of us who were in residence at the time. Phone calls were promised, then never happened. Appointments missed and cancelled. I mention this because it was an important factor in my experience, but I'm also aware that it was far from the norm. This was a difficult time for patients, staff and both of their families. My consultant was amazing. He was willing to negotiate with me and I was reasonable in what I asked for. I felt listened to and heard and very much in control of the direction my care plan took. I also feel that, had I not felt able to be as proactive, he would have supported me in a fair way. I don't want to give the impression that everything was awful because it wasn't. There are regulations I disliked, such as the locked bathrooms, but I also understood why this was necessary. 
Similarly, I also found the dietitian to be excellent, very much willing to work with me and to be realistic about things after the initial mix-up with my meal plan at the very beginning of my stay. Again, I'm sure she would have been capable of a much more prescriptive approach had this been what I required. I discharged myself after seven weeks because I truly felt that being an impatient was causing my mental health to deteriorate significantly. I really didn't feel I had anyone I could talk to and trying to deal with the thoughts and feelings coming up as a result of weight restoration, increased nutrition and the cold turkey approach to my behaviours was getting to be just too much. I was beginning to sink into a real depression and I felt I had to get home. At least there, I could freely engage in activities I enjoyed which were not possible in the hospital. Simple things, like sitting in the sunshine to read, something which has always brought me a lot of pleasure. Again, due to the regulations of lockdown, the support that would normally be available for the transition period from hospital to home was not in place. I don't think that anybody expected me to cope and there seemed to be a general feeling that I would probably relapse. Since I wasn't under a section, I was free to discharge myself, but pretty much everyone did their best to talk me out of it. Even I wasn't sure how things were going to go. I did slip back into my exercise and binge purge patterns, but I didn't lose any of the minimal weight I restored whilst I was inpatient. Whilst my experience may not have been what I'd hoped, it certainly did help me on the path to recovery. The seven weeks I spent there gave me a good foundation on which to build. Would I have reached this point without my hospital stay? I honestly don't know, but if I did, it would certainly have taken me much longer. I have tried to be honest about my experience of hospitalisation. To give you the facts and stress mitigating factors such as the effects of the lockdown on the usual running of the facility. I'm not trying to discourage anyone from accepting an admission should it be offered. On the contrary, I would urge you to seriously consider it, particularly if it could mean going in voluntarily rather than under a section. It seems to be the older you get the less opportunities for inpatient treatment are offered to you. And if you don't take that bed you've been offered, you may not get the chance again. This is due to our broken NHS, the huge discrepancy between treatments for mental and physical illnesses and the lack of funding available in many areas to give people what they really need. I sincerely hope... I never have to go into hospital for an eating disorder again. It's never going to be a pleasant or easy experience for anyone, but it may be necessary. Equally, it's not your only hope of recovery. Many people can get stuck in a revolving door of admissions and relapses. It won't work for everyone. You need to want it to work. Be willing to follow the rules, even when there is an opportunity or the temptation to break them. I found that focusing on myself and not on what others were doing really helped. If somebody else was hiding their food or breaking the rules, that wasn't my business. They were only undermining themselves. 
and I wasn't going to let it undermine me or affect my recovery. It isn't selfish to put yourself and your recovery first. If you've had an eating disorder for most of your life, why would you want to live with it for a single second longer than you absolutely have to? It can take so long to reach the point when you finally realise this, that the eating disorder is not something you want or need or welcome into your life. I hope that this episode has given you something. And please, if you do have an opportunity of help, don't let yourself talk yourself out of it. Don't tell yourself you're not worth it, you don't deserve it, somebody needs it more. You'll always be able to find an excuse. If it's being offered, it's because you need it. And you have every right to take it, seize it with both hands and make the most of whatever opportunities you have. Take care. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of My Chaotic Mind. If you have enjoyed it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could take a moment to rate, review and share it with your friends. It's the only way to let the world know this podcast exists. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram at edpodcas or you can send an email to edpodcas at gmail.com. I do hope that you will join me for the next episode, but until then, take care. Bye.